Welcome, everybody. Welcome to this Virginia Festival of the Book event. Uh, I think kudos are very much in order for the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, which does such great work. At a time when the humanities are increasingly imperiled, the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities stands up and gets the job done. They help educate our citizenry in the vision of Thomas Jefferson. We who benefit from this book festival and much more are deeply in their debt. I wonder if there are any representatives of the foundation here this afternoon. They're probably scurrying to get work done. If you think that the humanities and the arts are important for public citizenship, if you think that the humanities and the arts contribute to public life, I would urge you to be steadfast in your support of this noble organization. And I would urge you to continue to advocate for the humanities at the federal level as well. The end of my infomercial. <laughs> my name is Michael Suarez. I have the great privilege of being the director of Rare Book School here at the University of Virginia and a professor in the much esteemed Department of English here at the University. Today we are gathered for the forum Shaping Eye, a conversation about rereading Bronte in the 21st century. How very fitting that we should do so in the dome room of Mr. Jefferson's rotunda. You will recall that when Mr. Jefferson designed the Academical Village, he wanted there to be no church on grounds. Rather, there would be a temple of learning. A temple of learning which would contain spaces to congregate and lecture halls, places for conversation, and above all, a well-furnished library. For Mr. Thomas Jefferson, the heart of any great community of learning was a library and the opportunity to spend time with great books. This afternoon, we are graced by three distinguished women who have spent a great deal of time in the world of arts and letters indeed. My charge is briefly to introduce them here and then to vacate the premises. <laughs> Karen Chase here is the Lyndon Kent Memorial Professor of English at the University of Virginia. She is the author of many books, including Eros and Psyche, The Representation of Personality in the Works of Charlotte Bronte. Charles Dickens, and George Eliot. <coughs> George Eliot's Middlemarch, The Spectacle of Intimacy, A Public Life for the Victorian Family, co-authored with Mike Michael Levinson, who is among our number, and Middlemarch in the 21st Century, an edited volume, as well as The Victorians and Old Age, which I warmly recommend to you. Patricia Park 
is the author of the novel Ray Jane, which many of you will have read. It was named a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and American Library Association's Best Books of 2015. She has written for the New York Times, The Guardian, Salon, and other publications. She received her BA from Swarthmore College and her MFA from Boston University, and she is the recipient of fellowships from the Fulbright Foundation from Suwannee, from the Center for Fiction, and starting this fall, she will join American University in Washington, D.C. as Assistant Professor for Creative Writing. Congratulations. She was born and raised in New York City, the greatest of all cities in the world, <laughs> where she lives now. Barbara Heritage is Associate Director and Curator of Collections at Rare Book School the University of Virginia. Dr. Heritage has spoken and written extensively on the publishing and reception history of Jane Eyre, as well as on Charlotte Bronte's own bookmaking and manuscript-making processes. She is currently completing a scholarly monograph based on her University of Virginia doctoral dissertation. The monograph is entitled Bronte and the Bookmakers, Jane Eyre in the 19th Century Marketplace. I understand that Scorsese has already purchased the movie rights. Her latest exhibition, Shaping Eyre, Charlotte Bronte's classic novel in 200 objects is currently on display here in the dome room, and I encourage you to avail yourself of this remarkable exhibition. See monumentum requires circumspice. Thank you very much.
I wanted to see what would happen if, if I translated into the world that I knew. Um, I'm from Queens, from Flushing, Queens. I grew up in a Korean American community there. Um, my world was uh, blue collar, um, immigrant communities, and I just thought, how would someone like Jane suffer, suffer, flourish? What would kind of be her um, her adventures in the world that I knew? And then purely from kind of a mechanical point of view. Um, the novel track I started, this took me about 10 years, but even before that, um, I was struggling with a, with a novel about a, a girl from Queens, and, and she was going on these different adventures and trying to have her coming of age. So I'd have all these scenes of, you know, Jane at the bar, Jane at the coffee shop, and they repeated, like, bad TV episodes. It was like watching Friends. I mean, the bad, even worse version of that. Um, and, and I just thought, logistically, how can I... What kind of structure can I rely on? I just need a scaffold and something to string a, a, a plot together. Um, it was my first novel, and I looked to a classical structure, and I looked to this novel that had so resonated with me for for decades, and, and I kind of leaned on on Jane Eyre, and, and then hopefully at this point you can kind of pull away the scaffold, and it's also a novel in its own right. Um, 
prophet versions of Jane Eyre that have been written, rewritten, inspired, adapted. Um, there's one um, author's note that really strikes me, and it's uh, for a book called Devil in the Dark. And the author writes um, that this is a kind of tribute to the novelist who inspired her um, as a writer, to um, Daphne du Maurier, to Emily Bronte, and to Charlotte Bronte. And that it's her, um, her tribute to them and to how they shaped her books, um, her ideas of reading. And so I do think that, um, that writers do have a strong sense of being part of a conversation across time. And, um, and the spectrum of their response in that conversation is sometimes just a, a hint. Um, a, a very glimmer of the fact that they write this novel, there might be an allusion to a full out, full blown novel that follows um, the plot um, detail uh, after detail. So, yeah. I don't know, but there's a different idea about what you need. I mean, were you thinking, when you're thinking of your audience, were you thinking, um, I had a lot of questions about who you But um, one of them is, were you interested in engaging your audience using Bronte's novel as a point of reference that you shared? And um, did you see yourself as answering some need or desire from your audience? Well, I have to just start with a question. I'm just such a sucker for remake. Um, I don't know if any of you guys watched PC Sherlock. I couldn't get enough of it. And I love that fresh take, the kind of tech-savvy, um, but still socially awkward Sherlock Holmes making his way through modern London. And it took all of these elements, you know, an element of a good caper, a good mystery, um, and then there was, you know, all this deduction and, and translated it to the times that we knew. Um, one of the struggles that I had in retelling of Jane Eyre is that, um, well, it, it took place in the 19th century and it was written in the 19th century. Um, the kind of, I think, the stereotype or the joke is that the Victorian heroines only kind of face three fates marriage, inheritance, and or death. So, <laughs> not exactly a, um, a world of opportunities for the 19th century female, um, and particularly in the literary landscape. So, what I found is that, uh, yes, relying on a Charlotte Bronte novel, there's some kind of shorthand in, in, in leaning on a literary goddess. Uh, but it was also, um, oh, I found myself a little stymied in that as, as progressive as Jane was, and as forward thinking as she was in her time, she was still following certain conventions of, of her period. Um, that iconic line, we are American. Um, I, I don't want to kind of start a fight here, but I took a lot of issue with that line. I know there's some part on Team Rochester. Um, you can talk later in a safer space. But, um, I, I felt like I don't think that would translate necessarily to the modern, you know, a modern world where a modern heroine has so many choices. She could, yeah, marry, get an inheritance, and or die, but she could also go to college. She can become a professor. She can you know, become a dancer, whatever. Um, and, and I wanted to explore that world while still being true to the spirit of the Jane Eyre that we all know and love. Charlotte Bronte did not publish under her, her real name. During the whole course of her life, she had never published 
Ashwara Bhante. Um, she shows this kind of generational curve bell um, tending. And maybe you might be more to this as experts, but um, the initial reception was that when everyone in the literary, literary scene thought that Jane Eyre had been written by a man, was like, whoa, this is a work of literary genius, this is wonderful, oh my gosh, never before in this time. And then slowly these rumors started to happen. Oh, it's Jane Eyre, I'm showing up a Kerbel, who is Kerbel? Maybe it's a woman. And as those rumors started to trickle, then the reception of Jane Eyre started to change. It went from being this celebrated work of staggering genius to, oh, Maybe let's question the morality of this book. What kind of woman would write that? Um, she was when she was, I think when she was about 12, um, she'd been writing her whole life. She'd written to the poet laureate of the time, Robert Sally, Sally um, and she had asked writing for advice, which is a really cute thing to tell when a 12 year old child. But I also think in her life, she never really stood five feet tall. So imagine how much, you know, fatigue she was as a 12 year old writing this little letter. To, to her hero. And he said, I wrote the book, um, literature cannot be the business of a woman's life, um, nor should it be. Can you imagine how that must have felt? Um, so I would hope that Charlotte Bonte, I don't know, if she were allowed to make a shake hands, and she'd be a high five. I don't know. A girl's dream.
and I, um, it was only a few months after that that I was um, at a reception in Alderman Library, and I walked through a door, and I was in a rare book school for the first time, and I saw a table piled with copies of Jane Eyre, and I thought, oh my goodness, I had been a book collector, but I never thought about collecting multiples of the same title, and I never thought about doing things like cliff notes or mass market um, romances that had tie-ins. And I just saw immediately that there was another way to collect the history of a book and that maybe I could write on um, the history of, of a book that way, that I could bring my collecting interest together with my interest in literature. And it just, a light bulb went off and it happened to be an RBS staff member um, just there. And eBay was up, I thought about eBay. That was my first time on eBay, and um, I uh, became a career collection just a couple of years later. Um, I got a job at Berkeley School, and um, and I did feel that um, as someone who likes, I suppose, who loves books, I needed a direction, um, not just to collect at random, but to collect with a purpose. And so thinking about how a book has evolved over time, how its readers have changed over time, how different uh, readers imagine the book gave me a structure for collecting. It allowed me to track a history that's very different from other histories. Most special collections collect price box. Um, the first edition of Jane Eyre and original cloth was for $100,000. Easy, easy. Um, it was not a cheap book to collect as an early first edition. The second and third editions were also expensive in original cloth. And the manuscripts now, the Juvenilia, can sell for about $900,000 at auction. That's for a little book that Charlotte Bronte made in her teenage years. So Bronte is a very hot commodity for book collectors. And a lot of people can't afford to collect Bronte unless they're interested in collecting what everyone else um, is doing every day, and that's cook notes, that's romance novels, and it's collecting um, reading and you know, collecting the current life of the book. So um, these are the kinds of books that might not be saved um, in a special collection because they're not that valuable right now. But as you'll see, there are books that we have from the 19th century, and there are only three or four copies that still exist because they were precisely the copies that everyone read. They were the mass market paperbacks that got discarded. And yet they revealed histories about those readers at that time and what those readers were interested in. So by preserving these different copies of Jane Eyre, we in a sense preserve the reading history of Jane Eyre and all of those, those voices that we don't necessarily get to hear, um, the voices of the reader, as it were, the voices of the publisher um, responding to readers' needs. So, so that's where I find creativity in working with books. I, I do um, feel a real connection with those, those communities from the past. And it's so amazing to think about how you chose various ways in which the novel was drawn. And one of the things that interested me in your book was that the actual references to Jane Eyre, those are they could easily, I mean, the great, they could be cut out where you have Mrs. O'Donnell appears, right? Oh, my gosh, she was in the Senate Island, or where you say, well, certainly the reader, that has more dangers to it, but where 
It was 
the ability to read a situation and anticipate how you were expected to behave. It was filling your elders' water glass first before reaching for your own. The adults at church always said that good news sheep was the result of a good family education. So, uh, I don't know. To, I think when I was growing up, I, I, I grew up in this concept of Ninchi, and my mother, who is a Korean immigrant, she would always say, you know, Americans, they have no Ninchi whatsoever. And it seemed to be this kind of social code embedded in the culture where you just had to know to do something without ever being told to do it. And as I read Jane Eyre for the first time, and subsequent times too, I think one of the connections that I felt, maybe we can talk a little bit more about this, is the kind of strict social codes that are written into the culture, very much like a Victorian culture. Um, so uh, my mind was kind of drawn the link between the, the Victorian kind of mores and, and the ways to act in a society, and, and the kind of hierarchy and knowing your place within it, as well as the, the Korean kind of cultural understanding. And so it's convention and expectation, and Jane clearly adheres to this so much, but then but then she doesn't. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and I think this happens also with our new Jane, um, who finds at some point, if you want to realize your own ambitions and you don't see the reason behind the convention, you don't follow it. Yeah, I mean, it can be wonderful and it's helping society and all of that, but as an individual, you kind of feel like you're in a straitjacket. You're like, oh, I want to tell that person that they're ugly and mean, but I didn't break some social code, I can't understand the pretend, or whatever, whatever the equivalent is. Um, and I think for my Jane, her journey throughout the novel in the kind of classic builder's Roman um, or novel of education is that she learns to find her own voice. So in the beginning of the novel, she's still kind of tentative and she's like, yes, okay, she sees a, a look being exchanged and interprets it and immediately acts. And throughout the novel, she starts to put the bricks on things and, and hesitate. And when we see that equivalent, what I was really inspired um, by was in the original Jane Eyre, I think Jane Eyre actually has a reverse journey in a sense. As a child, she's incredibly outspoken. She tells the aunt who raised her, like, you never loved me. If you had at least shown me a little bit of love, then maybe I would have loved you back. A nine-year-old talk, you know, you don't know me Yeah. <laughs> I mean, talk about getting lit, I guess, but, and especially in that time frame. And Jane kind of gets that beaten out of her, literally, figuratively. She goes off to her version of Lowood, which is a horrible place. Um, and, and throughout, I think both of our Janes are really searching for love and searching for ways of, of expressing themselves as true to who they are without feeling that kind of stifling force, external as well as internal. Barbara, I'm, I'm completely off because, the, of course, I follow the more sensational <laughs> examples you have, too. My sense in, in the books you've collected is that many of them don't show the ambiguity, they choose one or the other. Can you say something about that? Yeah, yeah I, think, uh, uh, I think that's right, Gary. Um, for example, uh, Disciplinary Jane <laughs> uh, is a a sadistic, um, it, 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 it's, it's, it's um, essential literature, and it's a sadistic um, um, retelling of the romantic life of Jane. And this is picking up on some very um, uh, violent episodes that we see in Jane Eyre, 
they are they are real. There is real trauma. There um, there is violence in, in that book, and I think that that perhaps um, is the most extreme example of following one thread and really taking it to the to the extreme. And so the book is really that that um, uh, novel, which is um, Blue Moon Books. It's kind of a fly by night pornographic press. Um, it's an exhibition if you want to see it. Excellent <laughs> exhibition. Um, um, but that book is really exploring and, and excavating a, um, another side of, uh, of the novel that I certainly um, would be taboo to most people. Um, There's one, I can't remember the name, but the cover, um, you have it in here and she's holding the bloody sword and she's just holding Oh, James Lair? Jane goes to Korea to kind of search for her, her 
promote truth from family roots and to kind of understand more about this shameful past that she comes from. She's she's mixed race Korean. Uh, she was told that her mom got knocked up by a GI stationed in, in Korea during or just after the war. So um, that's her narrative. She kind of has to live with that shame physically manifest on, on her face. So. Um, that, that was part of the adventure, and um, what I learned there, I think Jane learned as well, and, and this idea of like, where do we come from, and where do we call home, um, and, and is that where those people also think we're from? So many 19th century novels have a lot to do with orphans and orphanhood, and both your novel and here begin with an orphan, and the orphan thinks that the Yeah, I was going to read something after because she's an expert on 
referred to names, but that's what it was. But as I watched it, we watched it, and I thought about Hunter's character, and I tell his character to kind of watch this figure out. Danielle's character is sort of that public uh, spouse. Um, it works very well as a kind of reimagined. That's, that's really, that's, that's, a, that's a great point. Um, so in your collection, there, there are all kinds of books that seem to be, or pieces of art that seem to be responding to J.R. The scope for this collection, there has to be some name, and a J.R. has to appear somewhere in the name. Um, otherwise, the collection would be, right now the collection contains more than a thousand names. That's a big, a lot. Um, <laughs> um, uh, River School has 80,000 items in its collection, so um, that's, a, that's a, a, a thousand is a lot. Um, and that's how we kind of reined it in, but we have Jane Eyre mugs, um, earrings sold under the name Jane Eyre. But there are many more uh, works that are responding to Jane Eyre that aren't in the collection, and I, I love that element. Um, that's great you bring it up because I see what you're, what you're getting at with that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if any of you guys know that kind of sci-fi term, but it's 
the closer you get to the real thing, the weirder and more uncanny it is. And that's how Jane has to live her life. So that's kind of a key difference. I guess that's how I would feel it, it, it separates from the world of autobiography. Class is such a huge issue in And, um, you know, famously, Bronte has to give uh, Jane an inheritance before she can return to Rochester as an equal. And she conveniently decides to give away much of it, but she'll keep 5,000 pounds. Um, that's not an issue in here, and success is not tied with the amount of money. There are other registers for success. You know, which firm do you get an offer from at the beginning? And what, you're going to just be a babysitter or a nanny? You know, there's, there are those distinctions, but those are more because it's not so much the class issue, it's that intellectual, uh, as a high, anything in the left a higher status. So, which college you go to, what firm you get um, an invitation from, and so on. You didn't have to give her an inheritance gave her an inheritance, but he didn't have to give her an inheritance. Um, I'm just curious as to how much class entered your mind as, as an author. Um, for me, I think a big class, the theme of class comes to play in that Jane is from Queens, and this is the world of Queens. Like most Queens writes, we're all dreaming to get out, and that means to go to Manhattan. And where does Jane end up? She takes an old care job to Brooklyn, which is like, you may as well just stay in Queens. Um, but it's, it's an interesting kind of Brooklyn because she takes a job for an academic, um, a woman who, Beth Mazur, the, the Bertha Mason character, who studies, uh, who teaches women's studies and is going up for tenure, which, um, as, as any academic knows, is enough to kind of make you go crazy. Um, this is her first, she's only a few exits down on Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Uh, but Jane enters a completely different world um, of kind of organic meatgrass and fair trade coffee and um, and a certain kind of rhetoric, an academic rhetoric that was completely foreign to her, um, being just a few miles down the road, essentially. And and so that's kind of how I imagine class at, and it drew from my own experiences when I left Queens to go to Swarthmore, and I was thrown into this world of academic needs, which I didn't know my family didn't read the New York Review books, or I didn't know who Dick Erdow was. I, you know, I didn't remember. I'm like, myself, I don't remember much of him. Um, but, you know, I was in school with people being like, oh, Wittgenstein, or Benjamin, every five seconds, and I'm like, oh, well, um, they would take lots of paragraphs to say something that, say, my immigrant parents could say in one short sentence. Um, so, that, that's kind of how class is reimagined in Rejane, that what happens when you throw someone into a different world, geographically super close, culturally eons away, or you know, legions away, and, and what are the clashes that ensue? Um, that just suddenly rose up in popularity. I saw Michael Sarah 
on the street um, arrested development in, in Carroll Gardens. Um, uh, Beyonce's sister bought a place in Carroll Gardens. It's ridiculous now. But, um, but brownstones, working class, Italian roots, and then you have this woman like Bethany who are coming up in our storm of uh, whatever it is that she does, yes, demanding uh, having a home home press machine and, and kind of doing that thing, and, and she's a partner in there too. Um, she, Jane gives friends with another owner named Nina Scaliano. She's like a girl from the neighborhood, I think like maybe Marissa Tomei in an earlier kind of iteration. Um, and she she resists this new class that's coming in on her turf. And I saw that happening all over New York and all over the New York that I grew up with. In these neighborhoods, um, you know, Polish neighborhoods, um, South Asian neighborhoods that were becoming gentrified in a way that was sudden and um, wrought. So I wanted to, yeah, show that that was part of, part of the New York that I knew and it's, it was not just all kind of hipsters in a dive bar, like, drinking their craft beer. <laughs> Which is, I feel like every other novel I read. <laughs> you know, one last question, maybe, but um, I'm interested in, you know, the famous Jamier's uh, 30 addresses to the readers. And many critics have talked about this, and are they the same readers? Sometimes it seems to be condescending to them, sometimes she's pulling them along, sometimes they're equals, whatever. Your addresses to the reader. Did you imagine many different readers or a reader of many different moods, or did you have an interlocutor, always the image of just a kind friend, or you know, who was your reader? Um, I think when I was first reading Jane Eyre and and Charlotte Bronte interrupts the prose to have Jane say, "Reader, I whatever, Mary, and whatever else." Um, I felt like she was speaking to me. She's got millions of readers. She she knows going to get too whatever about me, but I felt this intimate relationship, and, and I guess I wanted to reproduce that. And and maybe I was speaking to some other version of myself in one way, or just anyone who, who I felt like would relate to, to this world or relate to the feeling of being an outsider. Um, I think anyone who's felt out of place um, connects to Jane Eyre and then hopefully connect to Re Jane as well because. It's not interesting to read prose or books about people who are in the mainstream, who are firmly in the mainstream. Um, in Pretty and Pink, I've been reading Envision from the point of view of the blonde cheerleader. There's no substance there. Um, I think it's affording that kind of point of view of someone who's not quite belonging to that world that can show these insights. So, so I guess that was one part of my, when I wanted to address the reader and, and kind of make that one-on-one -on -one connection with them. It's so interesting to say that Jane says um, at one point to the reader that she could never feel comfortable until she had pulled up a chair to the heart um, of another person to speak intimately and personally, familiarly with somebody else. And I feel that this is the relationship that you're describing with your reader. And, and this is certainly, I don't know if you felt this way, I felt this way reading the book, that you were pulling your chair up close to me. And I can enter the book and speak to you, or you can speak to me. Uh, 